First of all, I am not Jerry Benjamin, as it says in your bulletin. Jerry will be with us next week. <clears throat> Today it's me. Last week, we looked at the last part of chapter 11. And I could have gone into chapter 12 because really there shouldn't be a, at least it's not the best place for a chapter division. Because the first two verses of chapter 12 are the natural consequence of what he's talked about in 32 through 36. That God has been rich in his mercies toward us. And that all things are from him, through him, and to him, and to him be the glory forever. Therefore, it only stands to reason that we would present ourselves to him. But I didn't want to move into chapter 12 last week because I didn't want to, to, to move too quickly away from Jesus and the glory that is due to him. And I, I just really felt that it was profitable to spend that time just meditating on, on all that God has done for us in Christ and who he is and that he is truly worthy of all glory. That section of scripture essentially tells us that based upon all the truth of Christ and what God has done for us in Christ, the doctrinal propositions, the doctrinal facts, that that doctrine ought to result, good doctrine always ought to result in change of life. That doctrine is not just there for us to assent to, but it is very, very practical, and that practicality is focused ultimately in a life yielded to Jesus, a life of worship to him who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. The preliminaries have been done for us to present ourselves to him. When I teach through the book of the Song of Solomon, I think that probably one of the most profound um, statements in all the Song of Solomon is when that Shulamite, now the bride, the wife at the end of, of the Song of Solomon, says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Because she'd come to understand, as only married couples can, that we, as much as we loved each other when we came together in marriage, um, there's no surprise that we married sinners. I'm a sinner, she's a sinner, and sinners sin against each other. And to sin against the one that you love so desperately, and to still be loved to not only just be loved and tolerated, but loved and desired. It's amazing. Truly grace. And I think that's why she says at the end of this song, I am my beloved's. That in itself is astounding. And at this point in our marriage, his desire is for me. Wow. And in response, he has something to say. Already in their marriage. And he says to his wife, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, and jealousy is severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. But his request that he is making of his wife, not to renew their wedding vows, but to in a sense, almost go to flesh out, I guess, their vows. Put me as a seal on your heart, like a seal on your arm. You wouldn't think that would need to be said, but it does. 
We had students with us, a student with us one year from India. She came to us engaged to his hill. And she got a phone call one day there in the dining room. This was before all the students had cell phones. And she came back to the table, and we all knew that it was a phone call from India, so we were concerned and asked her how things were at home. And she says, oh, fine, I'm just no longer engaged. The engagement is off. Oh, and we're sad. We're so sorry to hear about that. She goes, it's okay, I, I never knew him, never met him. So, easy go, easy go. So this is different. And so a few weeks go by, she gets another phone call from India. So again, we're concerned. How are things? Oh, good. I'm engaged now. (laughs) Really? Same guy? No, different guy. Well, do you like him? I don't know. Never met him. And we were just all amazed. I remember one time the girl's asking, how can you love a guy that you've never even met? And she just was dumbfounded by that. And she says, well, I will love him. It's a good answer. So anyway, these engagements were going on and off over, the, over several months. Get these phone calls, on again, off again, different guys. And so one guy actually showed up. He was working in California. And he flew all the way out here to San Antonio, rented a car, drove up to his hill. And, she, and he had called her, I guess, from the airport. And so she went and hid. And, um, and so she was hiding in one of our guest rooms. And... and and, um, and so he showed up, and he's looking for her, and I went out to, to greet him, and, and, um, and I knew she was hiding, and he said, I'd like to see her, and, and, and I said, she won't, she won't come see you. And, I, and he said, well, would you ask her again? So I walked over to the guest room, she cracked the door a little bit, and she won't even open the door all the way to even talk to me, and, and, and she's saying, send him away. And I go, why? I am not engaged to him. I'm engaged to another man. Send him away. And I said, well, he's flown a long way to see you. You do not understand. I cannot see him. Send him away. And so I went back over to him and I said, sorry, buddy, but you got to (laughs) leave. And he says, you don't understand. He says, I've never seen anything of her more than a picture. But I am convinced that God wants me to marry this woman. He says, "We're we're not Americans. We don't date. He says, but God has told me this is the one. I'm a, I'm a Christian. She's a Christian. She's the one. And I said, well, you need to talk to God about it. She's not going to come out and see you. <laughs> so he got in his car and drove to San Antonio and flew back to California. And he talked to his parents as well as God. And he told his parents, whatever it takes, you get her unengaged to the guy she's engaged to and engaged to me. And they did. And he showed up again. And this time, he knows he'll be received. And he gets out of the car with balloons and flowers. She's dressed in her sari, and she's sitting in our office lounge. All the girls are in there with her. And he pulls up, and they're all, oh, they're giggling. <laughs> For the last couple of weeks, she's been asking me, because I've seen him and nobody else has, what does he look like? And I said, well, you'll get over the big hump between his shoulders. And And, um, and she, anyway, he shows up. And all the girls, I had to come out and I said, girls, you have to leave. They've never even met each other before. And so they all scurried away. 
he came in, and I got to do the introductions. Weird. <laughs> and so it became my official duty to introduce him to her and vice versa. And it was wonderful. But now all the preliminaries have been done. And all that's necessary is for the presentation. And I got to make the presentation. Now there's no reservation with her. She was very demure. She sat on the couch, would hardly even look at him. She'd steal a glance over and smile. And, and he just, was, just couldn't take his eyes off of her, man. He is just soaking her in. And the girls start... <laughs> The girls start coming in one at a time, acting like they just happened to walk through. Oh! It was a wonderful experience. So contrary to something else that I saw happen at his hill one day. It's a long introduction. One of our guy students, big, strong, handsome guy, tall, dark, handsome, good-looking guy, he decided he was going to ask one of the girls out. Beautiful girl. And he just figured they were made for each other. And so as they were walking out of class and over toward the office, in front of all the students, he just said, how would you like to go out with me this weekend? And she goes, out with you? What do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, like a date. A date? (laughs) And she starts laughing. With you? (laughs) You've got to be kidding. And this great big six-foot-two guy was about my size after all that was over. It, um, it just humiliated him. But he forgot something that the fellow from India initially forgot, but clued into. There are preliminaries to a relationship. Before that relationship can really become intimate and personal, vital, there are preliminaries. And what Paul is telling us here, look at verse 1 of chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Those are the preliminaries. Once God has shed his mercy upon us, brethren, Paul's saying, why would you not present yourself to him? He's not just coming out of nowhere and saying, would you give yourself to me? He has wooed you. He has showered upon you lavish kindness and goodness and grace and mercy. And so now, not to give yourself to this one is irrational. It is unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. And so that's why Paul is saying, I urge you, And that word urge, as I was doing my study on it, it's often used of a commander when he's before he goes into battle and he goes from man to man of those that are under his authority and he's urging them to take this this battle that they're about to enter to take it seriously, to be sober-minded, to buck up and understand this is serious business here. It's intense, but it's reasonable what he's asking of us. By the mercies of God, All the preliminaries have been done. Now that fellow can get out of the car and have all the confidence that he will be received and that she will give herself to him because everything that needs to take place has happened. Unfortunately for us, this doesn't necessarily take place. Understand here that Paul is writing to Christians, he's not writing to unbelievers. 
This is chapter 12, not chapter 1. And he's saying here, believers need to make a presentation of themselves to Christ. Christians do. This is why, again, the Song of Solomon passage is such a good parallel, I believe. Because they're already married. And the husband, after he hears his wife acknowledge, his, I am my beloved's and his desires for me. And he's going, absolutely. Now I'm asking you, put me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. You have got to make it certain, solidify it, reckon on it, establish it, tattoo it to your forehead if you've got to, that I am his and his desire is for me. Oswald Chambers talks about, he says, a lot of times the problem with Christians is that they have never gotten it settled once and for all who they belong to, who they are. And that's what Paul's saying. I urge you, brethren, Christians, brethren, by the mercies of God, the one who has done all the preliminaries necessary for us to present ourselves to him, do so. Present. It's the idea of yield. It's not do something for Him. It's simply yield to Him. He loves you and His desire is for you. It's to do it and to settle it so that it's a once and done thing, but to live in the reality of it every day. We've told you we've had Bob Hobson who has on occasion in the past been here to preach and he comes to his hill most years. He, he's... Um, very funny guy, but in his own way, in his humor, and he's serious. He says, I, first thing I do every morning when I wake up is drop dead. And what he means by that is he gives his life over to Jesus fresh every day. And, and again, what a habit and practice to be in. And again, it's, it's, it's what the wooing of the Spirit in us is constantly doing. Even before you wake, your, open your eyes in the morning, but you know that you're awake. Before your feet ever touch the floor, Jesus, here I am. Fill me afresh, O God, with your spirit. I can't live this life. You never intended for me to, but you love me, and you live in me, and you have showered your mercies upon me. The only reasonable thing I can do is to make myself available today for you to act in. It is the same disposition of Mary when she heard from that angel that, that you will be the mother of the Messiah. And she is going, how can this be? And he, and he says to her, it will be by the Holy Spirit that he will come upon you and, and you will conceive this child. And I'm sure she still didn't fully understand that. And yet her heart's response was, behold thy bondservant. Be it done unto me according to thy word. Here I am, act upon me. I present myself to you in accordance with your word. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, present your bodies. Now I know Paul, when he says bodies, most of the time in, Rome, in, in, in Romans, when he speaks of flesh, when he speaks of body, he's speaking of our whole humanity. And that is, is true here as well. We don't give him only our body. We give him our minds. We give him our souls. We give him our thoughts, our ambitions, our longings, everything we present to him. But it is interesting that he would specifically say, present your bodies to Him. We talk about receiving Christ and asking Him into your heart. 
which is not necessarily a bad prayer. We receive Christ, and he does come to live within us. It might be just as good to say, you need to present your body to him. This is not my body. Lord, it's yours. You have purchased my body with a price, and it is no longer my own. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is why in Romans chapter 6, Paul again writing to Christians, saying, no longer present your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. A presentation needs to be made. I believe it needs to be conscious. It needs to be specific. And we need to settle it. These are not my eyes, my hands, my feet. And you can go through your entire body. It is His. And give it to Him. Specifically. Nail it down. It is the only reasonable thing to do. And again, we know it doesn't stop with body, but it doesn't exclude body. And the focus here is on the physical body. And then, saying, God, my heart, my ambitions, my loves, my desires... It's yours. What he's talking about is dying to self. Dying to the right to self-pity, the right to self-justification, the right to self-sufficiency. Dying to self. It's yours, Lord. It's yours. It is yours to defend me. It is yours to provide for me. It is yours to live in me. It is yours, God. I give myself to you. The things that people say about me, the things that they don't say about me that I would like to hear. All of it, God, it is yours. If we don't live that way, we become mean, become petty. We begin to think that other people are our problems. And in fact, they are merely God's tools to bring us to an abandonment of ourselves and a presentation of ourselves to him. They truly are. God's tools. Not God's instruments to beat us up or anything, but God's tools to bring us to a deeper presentation of ourselves to Him. If you read on here, it says, This is, present your bodies to Him, a living and holy sacrifice. Living, any, every other thing that God accepted, every other thing that was brought to the temple or to the tabernacle, and presented to God, was killed. Do you realize that? Every living offering. You couldn't bring a corpse into the temple. You brought live animals, and they were to be without blemish. You brought them in, presented them to the priest, he said, thank you very much, and he put a knife to the throat, and he killed it. And that was a pretty dramatic picture that... The best that we can bring to God is worthy only of being killed. And it is also a picture that the only thing that will cover our sin is the blood sacrifice of another. We come to God, and we don't, He doesn't say, kill yourselves, but He does say, as a living sacrifice, present yourselves to Him. And it's not that God kills us, but He does see us as identified with the death of Jesus. And he wants to have that presentation 
be throughout all of life and in every aspect of life. So there's no corner of my life that has not been yielded to Him. Every minute portion of my being has been given to Him. And so truly, I live as God's. When Abraham offered up Isaac, Isaac was obviously willing. He was a teenage boy. He could have easily outrun his 100-year-old dad. And he didn't. He allowed himself to be bound. And he allowed himself to be placed on that altar. And he saw his dad's hand stretch out. I don't think it was stretching up in the air like all the, all the paintings make it. I think it was a knife put right across his throat, which he felt. And he knew that very, very soon he'd be going into glory. And there was no resistance. He didn't thrash around. He yielded himself. He was truly a living sacrifice. And when God provided a ram to take his place, man, I can't imagine there was hardly a day that went by where that boy, later as a grown man, thought about that his life has been offered to God. And every day, not just that one instance on Mount Moriah, but every day, Isaac must have lived acknowledging, I am God's. I am God's. I believe God would have it to be just that graphic of a presentation we make to Him. I am not my own. If we would just remember that. Every time before we venture into an area that we are not to be in, every time, as a Christian, God reminds us who we are. Every time. If we would just listen. Just listen. Living and holy. Sacrifice. But understand, the goal of this presentation is not sacrifice. The objective is not sacrifice. Sometimes we can get so down about the Christian life and all that God seems to be beating us up with and tearing us down about, we know it's just a life of sacrifice. That is not the objective. The objective is worship. But the point of getting there is sacrifice. But again, remember what we read earlier in the chapter, in chapter 11, who has given to God that he might be paid back to him again? Ultimately, there is no sacrifice. Consider the mercies of God. What do I have that I did not receive? What is God asking of me that he didn't first give to me? It's all from Him, even my life, my children, my wife, my health, my possessions. They all came from God, but my being came from God. And it's my being that He's ultimately after, that I would give myself to Him, living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. It's the only kind that is acceptable. You could not bring a dead sacrifice. You could not bring a blemished sacrifice. The only kind that is acceptable to God is living and holy. And then the New American Standard puts, which is your spiritual service of worship. I believe it's the King James which says, which is your reasonable service of worship. And the Greek would indicate that it could be either. I like reasonable. 
Or the idea again is rational. Either word fits. Reasonable. Rational. Anything else is irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's stupid. It is the height of folly for a Christian who has been purchased by the blood of Christ, who is no longer his own, who has been made a temple of the Holy Spirit, to not yield himself. It is the height of folly for that Shulamite woman who says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Not to to seal that love on her heart. And that's what he's saying here. It just doesn't make sense, folks, for a Christian not to present himself to God. But it may cost me. It may, he may send me to Africa. And I remember Bob Hobson, man, again, it was so funny years ago when he was talking about his own testimony and what he was afraid God would do if he truly yielded himself to God. And he says, I was convinced that God was going to send me to the deepest, darkest places of Africa and he'd have me marry an ugly woman. And then he says, Nina, his wife, please stand up. And we just all died laughing because we were thinking, do you realize, <laughs> is he going to pre- present an ugly wife or what? I mean, it was just hilarious. And she's not an ugly woman. She's a beautiful woman. But his point was just you can't, God's will, as he's going to tell us in the next verse, is good and acceptable and perfect. There's never going to be any regrets with making a presentation of yourself to God. Never. How can you regret Yielding yourself to the one who has already displayed and poured out his mercies upon you. Remember Romans 5, while we were yet enemies, when we were sinners, when we were helpless, when we were ungodly, he demonstrates his own love for us and that he gave his son to die for us. How much more? Now that we are the children of God, now that we've been reconciled to God, now that we've been saved, how much more he will love us. Why should there ever be any fear in taking our hands off our lives and saying, God, here I am? We're afraid of what people will do to us. I know. I'm afraid. Get afraid of the rejection. Get afraid of what people will think. Nobody's opinion matters more than God's. What can they ultimately do? Jesus said, don't fear the ones who can destroy your body. Fear the one who can destroy body and soul. And cast into hell. Now that was obviously written to unbelievers. But for us as well. Why would we fear man. When the scriptures would exhort us to fear the one. Who has given himself to us without reservation. You'll notice the connection between. A living and holy sacrifice. And reasonable service of worship. I believe the scripture knows nothing about worship. That does not involve sacrifice. That includes today. So I appreciated his hill when Kelly is is um, arranging the the student groups that will lead music in the mornings for devotions. He calls them um, music groups, not worship groups, because I can't make somebody else worship. I can't create worship. Worship is something that has to take place in each individual heart. And it is not merely giving praise to God. There are many people that praise Jesus all through his life. There was very little worship. And the difference being, worship always involves cost. Sacrifice. Always. David said at the end of of 2 Samuel, I will not offer to God that which costs me 
nothing. And the cost is a life presented to him. So we can have great music, good preaching, whatever, but if the transaction in each of our hearts is not, Lord, here I am, again, thank you for the reminder that I am not my own, but I'm yours. And I yield myself to you. I present myself to you. If that is not the transaction that's taking place in my heart, then it isn't worship. And if that is taking place, it's not dependent upon music, preaching, but it is a life. I can live a life of worship because I'm living, presenting myself to Him. And all of life becomes an act of worship. Not just when we come together for, quote, worship times. Those may be the furthest things from worship. If it's not resulting in a life yielded, presented to Him, it isn't worship. In verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to the world. We look at that as the outward pressure of the world that would begin to shape our our desires, our, our thinking, and to bring us into conformity to the world. The transformation, that word for transform, is the same word that's used of Jesus in the Gospels at the Mount of Transfiguration. Both Matthew and, and Mark, they both spoke of him being transfigured. And, and I like that because it is the transformed, I, I, I prefer to read this as transfigured rather than transformed, because it puts the focus right back on what was true of Jesus what happened at Jesus on Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration is what God has in mind here. And that takes the focus off of what I am doing. Both the conforming and the transforming are passive. I do not choose to be conformed. I do not choose to be transformed or transfigured. It is something that happens to me. I simply yield. If I yield to the world, I will become like the world. If I yield to Christ and present myself to Him, I will become like Christ. And so really the two words, most commentators today are saying they're not really different. Even though they're two different Greek words, many times, just like we have in English, different words can mean the same thing, and the meaning is essentially the same. Whatever you yield yourself to, you will become like. The yielding of yourself to the world is from outward inward, granted. The yielding of yourself to Christ is from the inward outward. But it will make an outwardly visible difference to yield yourself to Jesus. And that's why Christians rightly wonder. If this person claims to be a Christian and I see no outward visible difference in his life, maybe he's not a Christian. It might be he's not. But it may simply be that he is presenting himself to the world rather than presenting himself to Christ. And again, it has to be the, the, the transformation is a consequence of a yielded, presented life. No presentation, no transformation. That's the connection that Paul's making here. We may not like it, it may make us uncomfortable, but that's the way that it is. The, the transformation into the image of Christ is absolutely dependent upon a presentation of myself to Him. Present yourself to Him and you will be transformed. Remember when Jesus was transfigured? Nothing was changing in the essence of who He was. Nothing changes with the Christian in the essence of who He is when He yields Himself to Christ. 
All that is happening is that what is already true begins to manifest itself throughout my being and even visibly outside of me. That I become a visible representation of what has already been established positionally, spiritually in my heart. Jesus was outwardly changed. That was all that was happening. Those three disciples on that mountain saw for the first time with their own eyes what had always, always been true of Jesus. They saw His divine glory. It was already there. He didn't become God. He didn't start acting like God. He simply, God was allowing the others to see through Him what had already, always been true. And that's what the transforming is that God wants to do in you and I. And so this transforming process does not mean that my sin nature becomes less sinful. It doesn't mean that I become less capable of what I was capable of before I was saved. It doesn't mean that I become less oriented towards sin. Remember chapter 7, evil is present in me. The very good that I wish to do, I do not do, but I do the evil that I do not wish to do. But then he says, it is no longer I that is doing it, but it is sin which dwells in me. That is not just a stage of the Christian life. That is something that can be true of our lives in any given day, depending upon who I yield myself to. And that's why Romans 8, the the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. If I live from Christ, if I permit the Spirit of God to have His activity in me, and it is a presentation of myself to Him who lives in me, then His life will be evidenced. Life in peace will be what characterize our lives as we yield to Him. We are transformed by the Spirit of God. He does the transforming. Every time this word is mentioned, here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and in the Mark and Matthew accounts, it is the Spirit of God who is doing this. We don't. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says that when we behold Him, we shall be transformed, we shall be like Him. And so it's He that does it. Not, I do not transform myself. I do not transfigure myself. God does it as I yield myself to Him. But what about by the renewing of your mind? Isn't that our activity? And again, I would say, no. I can't even renew my own mind. I can meditate on Scripture, I can memorize Scripture, and I should. But I cannot renew my mind. This as well is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who regenerates me. It is the Spirit of God who renews me. And He will. See, there, why would He move into how I have to renew my mind? When, he, when the only thing that He's calling me to in this passage is to present myself to Him. It would, it's contradictory. I can, no longer, I can no more renew my mind than I can change my sin nature. It's not going to happen. Jesus saves And the regeneration that I need is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is His work. All He would have me to do is to yield myself to Him in faith, in obedience. Here I am, Jesus. Here I am. Do your work in me. How does He do that? He does it directly by His own activity. And He also works through 
the Word of God. No question about it. The Holy Spirit, in bringing about renewal, uses the Word of God. No question about it. But it is His activity. And unless He does it, it's not going to happen. That you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I think that a couple things are happening here on the will of God. One is that he's making a statement on God's will. It is always good, perfect, and acceptable. Always. He doesn't say easy. He doesn't say pleasant. The will of God is not always pleasant. The will of God does not, is not always easy. But it is always good. It is always acceptable. And it is always perfect. Always. Good, speaking of, not again, not pleasant, but morally upright. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. Morally speaking, it is good. And if you are looking at, at, at an option that you think might be the will of God, and it is not morally right, it is not God's will. It cannot be. And if it is something that God Himself cannot do, you don't even need to pray about it. It is not God's will. Cannot be. It is good as God is good. It is acceptable, meaning it's right. And it is perfect. Perfect. Every time. So how then could I ever fear what God's will is for me when it will always be good, acceptable, and perfect? I was afraid of getting married. 28 years old. And um, my brain had kicked in. And I was terrified. I knew I loved Patsy and I knew she loved me. Now, any question about that. But I was scared. Scared of getting married. And I can remember even, even during the wedding service. I don't have a lot of wedding pictures where I'm smiling because I'm scared to death. And I remember standing behind, you know, back in the back of the church there before we came out, you know, the groomsmen and the preacher. And, and, and there was the door going into the sanctuary and there's the door going into the parking lot. And I thought, why did they put that door to the parking lot? This is make it even harder than it would have been. I was absolutely terrified. And in that fear, I thought, God, why would I ever make this decision on my own? It is Because I knew I'm making the biggest decision of my life. I'm scared. But I knew I can entrust myself to God. Because I thought, as well as I know Patsy, and we had known each other for eight years already. Eight years already. As well as I know her, we've worked together in camp, we've dated, I've watched her date other guys, and so I know, you know, I knew her well, and she knew me. Still, I know. I don't know her that well. There's a major faith issue involved here. There are big unknowns, big unknowns. And so I talked to everybody I knew. I talked to my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sister. I talked to all my friends who knew us both. 
And it was one friend, Sonny Westbrook, who put his arm around my shoulder and basically just said more distinctly what everybody else had already been saying. And he said, Charlie. And Patsy happened to be walking by. And he said, for a girl like that to want to marry a guy like you, it has got to be the will of God. It so helped me. And I'm just thinking, you know, but it, and I thought, again, every person I've talked to has said the same thing. And I'm still afraid. And I realize there's nothing in Scripture that tells me that, that God's going to give me peace in every circumstance. He says that he will, he will guard my heart when I thank him and acknowledge him and, and by prayer and supplication give everything to him. That the peace of God will guard my heart. But that doesn't mean there's a deeper peace than an emotional peace. And, and I also was mature enough at this point to recognize that, that any decision you make will give you peace. And so God doesn't want me to make a decision based upon peace. Because really, if you're like me and it's hard to make a decision, when you finally make that decision, even if you've made the wrong decision, there's peace. That's not what God's calling me to. But God tells me there's something bigger than peace. It's good. It's acceptable. And it's perfect. And, if, and it will always be. And so I can say yes to the will of God, which is clearly good, acceptable, and perfect. And watch Him prove it. And that's the other part of it. If where He says, you yourselves, look at it again, that, that you may prove what the will of God is. Our lives, as we yield life, as we live lives yielded to Him, presenting ourselves to Him, our lives actually prove the point. We become living proof that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. And again, we don't become living proof that God makes everybody rich or that God makes everybody healthy. But we become living proof that there is a God and He is good. There is a God, and all His ways are acceptable. There is a God, and He's perfect. He's absolutely perfect. And my life becomes a living letter, a demonstration. That there's never any reason to regret God's will. It's good, acceptable, and perfect. He's after worship. He's not after sacrifice. He's after a worship that will result in God being seen in our lives. And He's worthy of it. His mercies have been showered upon us. As I've said before, you know, I think, you know, all these people that are angry at God, Christians can be too, and we shake our fist at Him and like Job saying in our hearts, if I just had my time of being able to argue with God, I'd, I'd, I'd prove my case. And I, I remember I, just last week when I was teaching up in Colorado, a guy told me that he's been witnessing to a woman who's just angry, angry at God. She didn't want to hear about him. She didn't want to receive him. She said, look what God's done to me. And she lists the things. And he very wisely listens. And he says, none of the things that you've just listed are what God did to you. None of those things. In her case, it was a judge that was just couldn't have been more unscrupulous 
and unjust in what he had decided. So that was a judge. That was an evil man. That was not God. And what he was getting at with her, and, and she's coming along, is that when she thinks about God, and all of us will one day stand before him, there will not be a single soul that says that God's mercies were not upon my life. That God was not good to me. He is good to all. Good to all. People are not, judges are not, we shouldn't expect justice from the world. But God is good. God is just. He is worthy of our worship. So folks, you can't preach this without it comes down to transaction. There is a transaction that God expects on the basis of His mercies. And it's a transaction that maybe you've never made or maybe you simply need to renew. God will not make this transaction for us. We have to make it ourselves. It's the problem with the church. It truly is. We have yielded to the world and we are not yielding to Jesus. So there's no conformity to Christ and our lives are not proving that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. And he would simply again just have us in our hearts to put him like a seal on our hearts. To put him as a seal on our hearts. Lord Jesus, I am yours. Thank you that you love me and your desires for me. Pure mercy. Pure grace. Here I am. Live your life in me. Live this life. I give it to you. Let me close this in prayer.